1: The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
2: Pushkin. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind. Along the walls, shelves stocked with proof. And all around, the clutter of clues wooden card catalogs, metal file drawers, walls covered with old maps. And over here, my mother's sketchbooks, my father's notebooks. This place stores the facts that matter, and matters of fact. It's all that stands between reasonable doubt and the chaos of uncertainty. Welcome to The Last Archive, a place I've been coming to for a while now, to think about knowledge and the history of evidence. I'm Jill Lepore. I'm fascinated by origins. When did something start and why? So for this final episode, I wanted to go on a quest for my own origins, a trip to the place where I first started asking questions about how we know what we know. I wanted to try to understand why, why exactly I've gotten so worried about losing those things, losing the ability even to know anything at all. Step over the threshold to the town where I grew up. Long before I was born, the town where I grew up was taken apart, brick by brick, stone by stone, plank by plank, tree by tree. How long does it take to build a town? I don't know, decades, generations. Clearing fields, cutting roads, building houses, planting crops, setting up a grist mill for grinding flour, a butcher's, a baker's, a candlestick maker's, establishing a church, a town hall, a town common. How long does it take for all that to be dismantled? I know that answer, precisely, nine years. In the 1890s, the city of Boston was running out of drinking water. The Board of Health studied the problem, looked all over the state of Massachusetts for solutions. Where could they get water? They decided the best solution was to dam a river, the Nashua River. They'd create a reservoir with the water from the dammed river and build aqueducts to bring that water from the reservoir to the city. Problem was, the place where they wanted to build this reservoir, a beautiful valley, a bountiful 4,000-acre floodplain, it was a town, the town of West Boylston, population, 3,000. Still, it was the best option, and the state decided to go ahead in the name of progress. The state brought in the best engineers, drew up plans, detailed every inch of it, the dam, the reservoir, the pipes. The dismantling began in the year 1895. Half the population of the town was displaced. The state brought in immigrant laborers, Italians, like my grandfather, Giovanni Lepore, to do the work. At night, they slept in shanties made of old boards and rusty nails. By day, every day, they took things apart. 360 houses, eight schools, six mills, four churches, 19 miles of roads, and six miles of train tracks. The dam was finished in 1905. And then the valley was very slowly flooded with water, its vast expanse swirling around the stone foundations of dismantled houses rising higher, 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 like filling a bowl with soup, to the very rim. It was as if the town underneath had never been there. When we started this podcast three years ago, people kept getting the title wrong. The Lost Archive? It sounded so Indiana Jones— I had to keep correcting people. No, no, not the lost archive. The last archive. But I've come to see over these three seasons that a lot of the show really has been about loss. So instead of trying to avoid that title, I decided to jump right into it by going back to Wisp the part of that town that survived the building of the reservoir. By 1908, half the town had been flooded. The valley, or what had once been the main part of town, that was long gone. But after the reservoir was filled, the hills, that part of town, survived. What had once been the outskirts became the center. I grew up there in the 1960s and 1970s. I can't even... This tree, this giant spruce tree was, was here when I was a kid.
3: Was the weeping it's like willow. so far
2: the only thing, the willow tree in our backyard. Yeah. I felt right bringing my producer Ben here. We first met, oh, more than a decade ago when he was a student of mine. He was one of those college students where you say, plainly, I'm the one learning here. We'd really gotten to know one another when he was working on his senior thesis about Orson Welles. Ben and I share, among other things, a love of old radio, and dogs, and E.B. White essays. For The Last Archive, we've taken a lot of road trips. But for me, the weirdest quest we'd ever undertaken was that trip to the house where I grew up a tiny white brick-fronted colonial across the street from a restaurant called The Manor. Ben got there before I did.
3: I was standing out front of the house and then I was like, you know, maybe I shouldn't just be lurking here with a strange machine.
2: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't been back probably since the 1980s. You might think a historian would like to look back, to go back, but I don't like looking back at my own life. I'm also the opposite of a hoarder. I threw everything away, photographs, diaries, letters. I pretty much junked all of it. I love reading other people's old mail, pawing through their archives, but not my own. I also never go back. Everything's different in my old neighborhood now. The street used to be a sleepy little road. It's something closer to a raceway now. Our house was kind of raggedy, a little shabby, a vacant lot next door for kickball, wild blackberry patch in the back. None of that's there anymore. What hasn't been mowed down has been tarted up. When I was 12, the night before we moved out of that little brick-fronted colonial, I walked through every room in the house, in my pajamas, in the dark, carrying a flashlight, casting its glow from corner to corner, from floor to ceiling, trying to frame within the light and then commit to memory every single object within my sight. The yellow laundry chute, the cream and leather world book encyclopedias. The pink flowered wallpaper, the shelf of canned soups, the ashtrays in every room for my father's wooden pipes, the smell of his Briggs tobacco everywhere. I wanted to memorize the contents of the entire house as if I were shooting a film, to keep and etch and preserve it in my mind, an archive of my childhood. Nights afterward, I would close my eyes in bed and run the film again to watch it so I wouldn't forget it. Visiting there, looking at old photographs, that would have been crazy to me. Instead, I kept it in my head. I can still unspool that film and watch it when I shut my eyes. I know where the soup should be shelved, the spot on the bumpy, frumpy couch in the basement where my cat had kittens, the proper shade of pink for the bedroom above the garage. I didn't like to store things, but I like to keep memories. I was always worried about forgetting, mainly I think because I was so distressed by what distresses every kid. Grown-ups seem to have forgotten what it's like to be small and powerless and scared. How could they? For me, the place to go for answers to that question, for answers to every question, was the library. In West Boylston, that place was the Beeman Memorial Public Library. You could walk there from our house. And I walked there all the time because it was one of my chores to bring all the library books back.
3: How did you return all these books? I
2: had this like little red canvas rucksack that with these canvas straps that I really loved and I don't know where I got it or if I picked it out, but like I remember thinking this is exactly what a little girl should carry her books to the library and I don't know why <laughs> you got like I think I got it from a book in, the library. <laughs> a look in the library like The walk from my house to the library went partly through the woods, at least the way I took it. You walked across our backyard, leapt over a little brook, and traveled along a path through a shadowy pine forest.
3: You cut through this sort of blackberry field through a right-of-way. You
2: You emerged out of the blackberry patch, and all of a sudden, you were at the town common. There was the Catholic Church, our church, the cemetery, a skating rink in the winter, a gazebo. And then you cut through this park-like thing, which wasn't as landscape does now. This is the center of town. Door to door, it took all of 15 minutes. It's occurred to me more than once when working on The Last Archive that this building, this little town library, lies at its heart. When I say this thing at the top of the show about the place where the known things go, I must be thinking about the Beeman Memorial Public Library because that's the place where I, anyway, used to go to know things. Out front of the library, there's a little monument to the town's Revolutionary-era founder, Ezra Beeman. It's like how in The Simpsons there's a statue in Springfield to that town's Revolutionary-era founder, guy who goes by the name Jebediah Obadiah Zachariah Jedediah Springfield. So this is the famous Beeman watering trough? <laughs>
3: this, it is a kind this of is like <laughs> I think his name is over Ob- uh, Zachariah Obadiah.
2: <laughs> you can't get water for your horse here anymore, of course. The trough's empty. It's just decorative. But back when I was a kid, I found it magical. A portal to another world, a kind of time machine. To a world where people had horses, who needed water. And I was always curious about this mysterious founder guy, our Ezra Beeman. In The Simpsons, Lisa sets her mind on unmasking Jebediah Springfield. This quest takes her to Springfield's Historical Society, where she digs through the archives. And she finds... The secret confessions of Jebediah Springfield? Know ye who read this, there is more to
3: my life than history records.
2: That was exactly my girlhood fantasy, as I trudged every day into the Beeman Memorial Library wearing my red canvas rucksack stuffed with books. Standing in front of the historical plaque, I can still feel a little bit of that thrill. This watering trough was erected in 1808 at the Old Beeman Tavern by Major Ezra Beeman, the founder of West Boylston. This is
3: an ignorant question, but what does it mean to found a town? Is it like he showed up here and he was like, I like the cut of this valley and you should come (laughs) out?
2: Ezra Beeman founded West Boylston in the way that most New England towns were founded, by seceding from another town. The Beemans settled in New England in 1635. Ezra was born in 1736. In 1764, he built the Beeman Tavern, where colonists would later rail against British tyranny. Then he fought in the Revolutionary War. Starting in 1793, he lobbied the state, hoping to establish the valley where he lived as its own town, separate from the town of Boylston. He won that battle in 1808, founded West Boylston, and died three years later. How the library got started, that's another story. West Boylston opened its first library in 1878, mainly with a collection of books donated by the writer, abolitionist, and suffragist Lydia Maria Child. That library was demolished for the reservoir, and so was Ezra Beeman's family farm, and so was the Beaman Tavern. Anyway, in 1911, when the new town center was just being built after the reservoir was filled, Ezra Beeman's great-grandson funded the building of a new town library. It opened the next year as the Beaman Memorial. It opened at the height of the progressive era, when public libraries represented the vanguard of democracy. These free, beautiful places, open for everyone, especially for the waves of new immigrants, Hungarians, Jews, Italians like my grandfather. You know, probably the stateliest building in town. I mean, we're looking at it, it's a, you know, it's, it's not gorgeous. It's a, it's a sort of very kind of prim brick with white trim two-story building with the kind of pitched slate roof it's not imposing it's not monumental but it communicates its public charter in the way it faces this little common and in the way it occupies the tip of this long triangle where the two main roads of the town are coming together it just says welcome to our town and Here is our world of knowledge. Ben and I headed inside. We walked into a reading room with tall windows, long wooden tables, a quilt on the wall, each square stitched to depict an episode in the town's history. And it was very, very quiet.
3: You know how it's like... Every library has the sign that says, like, maintain a library-like atmosphere, yeah. which is this kind of, like, very circular reasoning. I feel that this is a really clear illustration of a library-type atmosphere like, immediately <laughs> upon coming in.
2: You feel it. The library was a lot smaller than I remembered. Also, it was a lot nicer. I could still close my eyes and picture where my favorite books used to be shelved, the corner where I liked best to read now, when I go to a library reading room, it's a big library. Harvard's Widener Library, or the New York Public Library, or the Library of Congress. The beam reading room is the size of a living room. And all the more magical for it. A tiny, mystical palace.
3: You see all these quotes about libraries? that are pinned up on the glass.
4: Yeah.
2: The very existence of libraries affords the best evidence that we may yet have hope for the future of man. T.S. Eliot.
3: There's also this um, Isabella a quote that's very last archivy. The library is inhabited by spirits that come out of the pages at night <laughs> or at the beginning of the episode.
2: When I was a little kid, I spent most of my time in the children's room in the basement where the librarian was named Mrs. Noise. Mrs. Noise, who told everyone to be quiet. The children's room has since then moved up to the second floor. Ben and I headed upstairs. Rugged carpet, hip-high shelves, pint-sized chairs, stuffed animals. Oh, this is so cute. I love, the I
4: love a children's
2: library.
3: So, it's like, like puppet theater estate. Yeah,
2: they have a painted puppet theater like a jungle. You graduate from the children's room and get set loose in the nonfiction and fiction stacks. The reference room, the card catalog, the computer terminal. Everything in a library is there just for you. And also just for everyone else. It's a public space for common knowledge and for community. But you could also take a piece of it back home in your backpack. Every step of the walk home, past the town common, through the blackberry patch, winding a path through the pine woods, leaping over the brook, sneakers squelching in the mud, rucksack on my back. Walking through the Beeman Public Library, I began to think it had been just this all along that I felt I'd lost. The giddiness of carrying that weight bringing home a stack full of books, believing they held all the answers. Spirits seeping out of their pages.
5: with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
4: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
2: Every little town library that I've ever been to has its own version of a last archive. Some tiny locked room, sometimes it's in an attic, more often it's down in the basement, where they keep old stuff, antiques. A lot of it is junk, stuff people donate to the library thinking it's amazing and collectible, but really it's pretty much trash and then the librarian has got to keep it, or feels obligated to keep it. I've seen very old and obscure books in these places, paintings, prints, unwanted bronze plaques, chipped marble statues, jewelry, boxes of beads, campaign buttons, moth-eaten ponchos, ivory chess pieces, stamp collections, faded photo albums. Sometimes it's a treasure, though. I found uncatalogued, invaluable portraits in these rooms, I once went to a town library where they had a mammoth tusk, and preserved in plaster, dinosaur footprints. I wouldn't be surprised to find a dead body in one of these places, honestly, a leather-strapped, padlocked trunk full of bones. The last archive at the Beeman Memorial Library in West Boylston is a windowless room in the basement with metal shelves and a dehumidifier humming. Anna, the library director, let us in. There was a wooden reading table and a cardboard box filled with tiny white cotton gloves. Ben and I stretched them on and began pawing our way across the shelves. I always want somehow to touch everything, lay a finger across the spine of every book. Ben's got this same bug, I thought, watching his white-gloved fingers tracing embossed titles as he read them out loud to himself, whispering. Neither of us are hardly happier than when in a room like this, dust spores dancing in the light. So much in so small a space, musty. It smells like knowledge. And none of it exists online, anywhere. Ezra Beeman's family Bible is here, heavy as stone. The guy who started the Farmer's Almanacs from West Boylston. So they've got a complete set of old Farmer's Almanacs down here. They've got the whole of Lydia Mariah Child's library, the 170 volumes that started off this collection. There are also plenty of records of my own family, Photographs of my father, who was a public school teacher, in the town's high school yearbooks. Smiling, surrounded by the men's basketball team, or sitting behind a desk, wearing a bow tie, smoking his pipe, and looking shy. Then there were also lots and lots of old maps and blueprints of the town. The 2,000 acres of farms and houses and churches and mills that in the early 1890s, the waterboard was planning to flood.
3: Plan of West Boylston after the survey of the Metropolitan Water Board, 1898.
2: The state had to inventory every square inch of land and everything on it to pay property owners and to plan the engineering marvel that was the reservoir and the dam. Each slope and incline, the pitch and size of it all. Looking at the engineering plans, blue with white lines like water and fishing line, I pictured what they hid. The farm where some sow once had a record number of piglets. You could almost hear them squealing. The hayloft where lovers met on autumn evenings, whispering over the thrum of crickets. Their whole world had been reduced to these blue sheets of paper. And then, after the project had been completed, what did the state water board do with all those plans? They gave them to the town library. On the wall above the bank of drawers that held the blueprints, there hung a manuscript framed and under glass, a letter dated 1912 from the town clerk's office in much faded handwriting. We are deeply gratified that we are the recipients of a kindness, the final expression of a long, cherished purpose, so appropriate and so timely. It was a resolution of thanks to Ezra Beeman's great-grandson, thanking him for the gift of the library. This gift... Will enable us, our children, and our children's children, down through the generations, to reap the rich fruitage of <laughs> <Huh? laughs> recorded human thought. Rich.
3: Where is it? <laughs> it's a it, hundred. It's got to be fruitage.
2: No, it's not fruitage.
3: Vintage? No, that's not in a V.
2: I just could not figure out this weird old word, could not see the letters, tell one from another, could not sound it out. found myself in a library, unable to read.
3: The word is fruitage for <laughs> <laughs> sure.
2: Huh? The word is not fruitage. Huh? The rich fruitage of recorded human thought. OK, so we had not found the equivalent of Jebediah, Obadiah, Zachariah, Jedediah, Springfield's secret diary. But honestly, it was better this tribute to Ezra Beeman's great-grandson. This gift will enable us, our children, and our children's children, down through the generations to reap the rich. (laughs) It's a good thing Ben was with me. He's much better at keeping his head at a word like fruitage. I mean, you can reap fruit. (laughs) To reap. The Rich fruited, it comes to this <laughs> like this the end. This is to like this the is scripts. the original, this is the Incanabula, <laughs> the last archive. We have found it here, and yet we cannot fathom it. To read <laughs> the rich fruitage of recorded human thought, this is where the known things go. <laughs> this letter, pressed under glass, framed in wood hanging on a wall, fading, had been in this little basement room my whole life, a 15-minute walk from my house, and I'd never seen it before. It would have meant nothing to me when I was 10 years old anyway, but it's been waiting here. For the moment, I needed it. Reading it, trying to read it, gave me that same magical feeling I always get when reading something written long ago. says something to me, as if it had been written and sealed in an envelope and mailed to me, mailed to everyone. But we each get to open it up when the time is right.
5: It's very beautiful. It is.
2: The archives of old podcasts don't have stacks, no spines of books, not even any file drawers, just MP3s floating in the ether. Episodes about Rachel Carson and Birdsong, about Pedro Gonzalez and Spanish-language radio, about the polio vaccine and Axis Sally and Soviet propaganda. Everything from the Scopes trial to January 6th. The idea of a fictional archive had been Ben's. But the fictional conceit always intersects with something real. That's what we found anyway. This love letter to Ezra Beeman's great-grandson from the town clerk, it was like that. I wanted to nab it stick it in my rucksack, head off through the blackberry brambles, and carry it back into the last archive. But not everything lost finds its way to an archive. Not most things, actually. Most things, they just vanish. Ben and I had one more stop. To the place where the lost things go. So see how we're just driving down into... You could imagine this just as a valley. It have just really gone lower, much lower than we were. Um, but this is the Wachusett Reservoir, and it's really very beautiful. When I grew up in West Wilston, it seemed as if everything revolved around the reservoir. It was just so big. It's vast, really, which means that you're forever driving across it or around it. It's just a reservoir, though. You take it for granted. You don't really think about it. Except that I did. Maybe when I was six years old, my mother told me that under the reservoir used to be the town. I remember we were driving over this same causeway, and then I got obsessed with it, the drowned town under the water, a town haunted, flooded, vanished. I biked across here all the time as a kid, this causeway, and I'm gonna take a left here and go by this hot dog stand, um, which is a famous landmark. Well, it used to be Bob's, but I guess it's Ron's now. The last stop of this last, last archive road trip to the Wachusett Reservoir. Like when you're a kid, like there's your family and there's your house and then there's your street and then there's your neighborhood and then there's some sense of your town. And I always felt like my town was just missing. My town had like gone to its watery grave. Below all this water too were the Nipmuc dead. Wachusett, that's a Nipmuc word. Nashua, the river that was dammed to make this reservoir, That's an Abenaki word.
3: Maybe there's also something, I don't know if this is like part of being a historian, or I don't know if you think this is part of being a historian, but if you have to have some kind of affective love of the past, like there has to be just an impulse there to feel a sense of belonging with it.
2: It was a little scary to me, but some sense that it was um, some kind of purgatory where the lost were trapped. And it's not as though I wanted to go visit them. Not least because I can't swim. I have more than once come very close to drowning. I'm terrified of water. Crazy scared of it. But I pictured it all the time. Wondered what might be down there, at the bottom of the reservoir. The thing about the past for me is it it doesn't ever really go away. Like, stuff that happened generations ago is... It's still kind of there. Like, you can go find it. You can... Look it up, and the evidence that it happened is very likely still there. Below this water are the foundations of houses that haven't been there since 1902. But the foundations are still there. You could still put on your scuba gear and dive under this water, and you would find, you would find the remains. It was as if there had been these three places growing up that had really mattered to me. My house, which I loved and knew we were leaving and tried desperately to remember— The library, where they actually kept things, stored knowledge, so that it wouldn't vanish. And this reservoir, which was where all knowledge was lost, just sunk, disappeared. How do you find your way to that stuff without drowning? After the break, Ben and I dive in.
0: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet?
1: Take your business further at tmobile.com/slash now.
4: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
2: I remember in high school reading Audrey and Rich for the first time. Poems she wrote in the early 1970s, especially this one. Diving into the wreck. Here's her reading it.
5: I came to explore the wreck. The words are purposes, the words are maps. I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. I stroke the beam of my lamp slowly along the flank of something more permanent than fish or weed.
2: These lines of riches just spoke to me then, cut into my bones. It was exactly how I had always pictured, diving into the reservoir, just going under.
5: The thing I came for, the wreck and not the story of the wreck, the thing itself and not the myth, the drowned face always staring towards the sun, the evidence of damage worn by salt and sway into this threadbare beauty, the ribs of the disaster curving their assertion among the tentative haunters.
2: The evidence of damage, the ribs of the disaster, the wreck, the ruin. Ben and I always joke about ruins and remains, how we both want to see those places. How That's a big part of how we imagined most episodes of this podcast, diving into wrecks.
3: We had all these trips and where we would go to some place where something used to be. Like, here's where Ralph Ellison's yeah. barn was.
2: Yeah.
3: You know, this is where West Boylston was. This
2: is where this dead body was found.
3: Right. This is the parking <laughs> lot where this crime was committed.
2: <laughs> this is where Dr. Doolittle once lived. At the reservoir, we parked the car near the hot dog stand and near the reservoir is one historic landmark, another kind of wreck. Now we're walking down this kind of gravel carriage road to the what's called the Old Stone Church, which was a Baptist church built just a couple years before the state decided to flood the town. <laughs> the town's Baptist church, right at this spot, at the edge of the valley, had burned to the ground in 1890, so the Baptists had built a new one out of massive stones, unburnable, to last forever. It was brand new in 1892. And then, the next year, the state water board made its decision to flood the valley. The Baptist congregation mostly left, fled to other towns like everyone else. But someone decided to leave the brand new stone church standing as a kind of monument. I guess it was just too new, too beautiful, too hopeful to dismantle what had just been mantled.
3: You want to go inside the church?
2: Yeah, let's go in. It's gotten so much nicer. They really did this incredible job renovating it. When I was a kid, it was it had been just left since you know 1895, and the roof had fallen in. I think it had been struck by lightning a few times, and it was really dangerous. And they had just put like a chain link fence around it, and it was kind of terrifying.
5: It's
3: also very wholesome graffiti. Eric and Tony. True love, Steph, marry me.
2: <laughs> there's no pews in it. There's no altar. There's no stained glass windows. There's no windows at all. There's just holes. It, um, it's a great-looking little church.
3: It really is. You can see why you wouldn't want to tear it down yeah. immediately after completing it.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful. Is this the thing we'd come for? In the basement of the library, we'd found that letter on the rich fruitage of recorded human thought. Common knowledge, in other words, the theme of this whole season. I'd wanted to show Ben the reservoir because it's beautiful, but also because I thought it might hold within its depths some answers about the theme of the whole podcast, the slipping away of certainty, the rise of doubt. And then we'd come to the church, a memorial to another kind of search for truth. One thing Ben and I share... We're both Catholic, and these holy places make us lightheaded with the sense of the eternal mysteries. It's one thing we've both been drawn to puzzle over in this podcast, how the mystery, the unknown, what was known only to God, had been replaced by the secular idea of the fact. And then, more recently, the fact had been replaced by data. A wholly new kind of mystery, with its own priesthood, but without the love. Water flooding a valley, leaving it a ruin, a wreck, we sat inside for a long time, watching birds fly in and out, tending to nests in the rafters. We heard picnickers outside popping the lids on soda cans. It felt right that we'd come together the two of us with a microphone and a recorder.
5: We are, I am, you are, by cowardice or courage, the one who find our way back to the scene, carrying a knife, a camera, A book of myths in which our names do not appear.
2: When we were first struggling with what to call this podcast, The Last Archive, The Lost Archive, for a long time we'd wanted to call it The Evidence Room. Somehow I think that name was already taken. There'd been some talk of getting around that by calling the show Jill Lepore's Evidence Room. But I'm glad my name never appeared. It's not my room. It never was my room. This podcast started out as a kind of murder mystery. Who killed truth? There's no real answer, or really, if I'm being honest, there are only two answers. First, everyone killed truth the dead, the living, the old, the young, the left, the right. The evidence is everywhere, a collapse of trust. And second, truth isn't dead, even though very often it's buried. A lot of it is floating around in archives and libraries and laboratories and classrooms and city halls and town commons and old churches. It's a question of finding it, saving it, deciphering it. Who killed Truth? I wish I could offer up a tidy ending, a big reveal, gather all the suspects into the conservatory, tell the story of my investigation, explain my methods, list every clue, and then, in a flourish, unmask the murderer. But I can't. Ben and I left West Boylston and the Old Stone Church and the Beeman Memorial Library and trudged back into the last archive. We'd met so many people, teenagers, scholars, dog scientists, archivists, artists, farmers, hypnotists, naturalists, poets. We'd been so many places. We'd dived into so many wrecks and come up mainly only with more questions. Cleaning up the last archive, we got to talking about where we'd been and what we'd found out. Trying to put the place in some kind of order. Theater tickets? Was there ever an organizing scheme? or is this, Like, these are things that fit in this drawer.
3: Yeah, well, it's an archive without an archivist, so that's always been sort of a problem.
2: <laughs> oh, wow, look.
3: It's all the episodes.
2: Every single episode of The Last Archive. How did those get here? That's weird. For the birds. His first bird walk, I guess. And I'd like to have had a movie. Cell strain. (laughs) Vita Hobby was a
3: lady in complete command.
2: Repeat after me.
3: I'm going to turn back through time and space. Did you turn the light on
2: over there? I didn't touch it. I don't think that doesn't even... That doesn't look like artificial light. Ben, is that glowing?
3: What's that sound?
2: It's almost like... Did you hear that? The Last Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane, Ben nadeff and Lucy Sullivan. Our editors are Julia Barton and Sophie Crane, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jake Gorski is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Our foolproof player is Robert Ricotta. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Special thanks to Anna Shaw and Steve Carlson at the West Boylston Beeman Memorial Library. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content like The Last Archivist, a limited series just for subscribers, and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jill Lapore. I've had my share of magic archives, but this place isn't done with us yet. I left my keys with Ben. He went back to check out that freaky light. Nobody's seen him in weeks. I think that's a good sign.
4: Right Rug Flooring.